Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we make the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley, in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made, and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders, past, present and emerging, for keeping this sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from, and if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There's a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery and equine communication, human and horse relationship building. Peter has actually had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the one you see in the podcast picture with me, and he was spot on about everything, so I can highly recommend his work personally. You'll find the links to Peter's work in the show notes. A huge thank you to our new Patreon subscribers, Anna Laurie and Sarah Powell. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world to me. I'd also like to take this chance to say hello to a very special girl who told me she listens to the podcast. Hello to Sasha, my beautiful girl. I love you very much and I think of you often know that you are loved so much and I'm so happy you are listening because then I can tell you how much I love you on my podcast. Take care beautiful girl and I hope we can spend some time together soon. In this episode I spoke with horse trainer and behavioralist Chris Irwin. Thank you to Nina who on Instagram told me about Chris. Once I took one look at his website I asked for an interview. I knew he'd have some gems for us all. Chris grew up in a home that was not safe and as a sensitive child he honed his skills in reading body language like so many of us have done from these types of upbringing. He also learned that the lack of congruence was not safe either. What people are saying and their actions were not aligned. This does not allow us to relax. We cannot rest in our nervous systems. We're living in our fight and flight mode. We have choices in this situation as a child, you know, fight leave or shut down. A lot of people I know chose to shut down. Chris was brave enough to leave and what this eventually led him to was a life with horses. When Chris started working with horses, people told him that it was not like he was learning to train horses, it looked like he was remembering horses. I believe this is the skills that he honed in his early life in a non-safe environment he, where he honed that body language and uh, horses spoke his language and he spoke theirs and that's why it was so natural to him. 
I always believe that as horse people, we are doing the best we can with the information we have. This is why I started the podcast to get more information out into the world so that when we, when we know better, we can do better. There are some great gems in this conversation from Chris about body language that really can help us to do better. So sit back and relax and enjoy the drive or the time in your stable or paddock cleaning and the wonderful Chris Irwin. Here is Chris. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure to join you. And can I start with the first question of, did you actually grow up with horses? I think your story is amazing. You're a horse trainer, um, to say the very least. You're a lot more than that. But uh, let's start with where it all began for you. Well, uh, that's a good question. And no, I did not grow up with the horses, per se. I, uh, I discovered horses at 19 years old. Um, it's kind of a classic cliche Cinderella story of uh, as a teenager running away from a very dysfunctional, dangerous family. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in, the family I was in, the school I went to, I, I was uh, very vulnerable and it was a very uh, painful time. And so I ended up out of a sense of survival running away and uh, like a kid who joined, runs off to the carnival or the circus, I spent a few years pretty much homeless. And then uh, by the age of 19, found myself as a wanderer a long way from what was home in Seattle, Washington in the United States at the racetrack and for work. I had heard that uh, they were hiring and I was just young and I was an unskilled laborer and I was hungry. So I went out looking for work. And uh, the moment I saw and heard and smelled all those horses, I, I had a very visceral experience. Every cell in my body just started buzzing and I got the goosebumps. And I knew without a doubt at that, uh, I had found, uh, found my life. And that was the beginning at 19. At the end of that very first day of work, uh, I, it was supposed to be daily work under the table, get paid cash under the table. And, and at the end of the day, the trainer offered me a, a full-time position and a place to stay. I was camping out on a cot in a stall in a barn with the horses. Oh, but but I thought is. I had just, it was, it was like a dream. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was surreal. I'm still trying to figure and, uh, out how to design a house to have horses in it. Have, yeah. have, <laughs> have like a barn on the end where the door opens up and they can stick their head through. I haven't figured it out yet, but I will. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. And what I was, was literally it about, living in a stall. Yeah. What was it about your first day of work that you believe led them to give you a full-time job? Because that's pretty big. Well, I remember it vividly. Uh, at the end of the day, he offered me the job. And um, I knew they weren't doing that. It was just a day-to-day get paid at the end of the day. So I asked, how come? Why? I was thrilled, but I was curious as to why. And um, he said, quote, you seem to be a natural. 
I'd spent the day going in and out of box stalls with thoroughbred horses, mucking stalls while they were in there. Um, on my first day, I wasn't allowed to learn to lead a horse or do anything like that. Just go in the box and pick up the manure. And uh, he informed me that at the end of the day, I was the only rookie he'd ever seen that um, was comfortable in there. I was comfortable with the horses. They were comfortable with me. We had an I seem to have some kind of intuitive ability not to uh, stress them. And so I was offered the job simply because I could get in and out of a box stall without stressing the thoroughbreds out. And wow. uh, ironically, fast forward 30, 35, and 40 years later, um, I'll be 60 next month, so we're talking about something 41 years ago. Um, to this day, what gets very interesting is we live in a, we're engaged in a very discipline specific sport, as we all know. And at the highest levels of the sport, whether they be jumping horses, Grand Prix dodge horses, very expensive thoroughbred race horses, very often with, with professionals who are at the highest levels of their game, <laughs> They call me because they have problems in the box stall with a horse. Here's a competitor riding Grand Prix dressage, and she's afraid of her horse when she's in the stall with it. Um, so it's ironic to me that the day that launched my career to this very day is an essential part of what I do, going into the stalls with horses who are stressed and, wow. and showing people how to be in a stall with a horse and de-stress that horse. That's amazing. That's yeah, absolutely amazing. You know, 40 years of learning in between. But I, I, every time I go into a stall with a difficult horse and a frustrated or frightened owner, rider, trainer of that horse, I, I think back to that first day. Yeah. Wow. And so you started working full time, which is sounds like I was saying before, you know, going from the situation you were in that was so precarious to sleeping in a barn, that, that would have been um, a bit of heaven in my shoes as well. Having that smell 24-7 would have been amazing. How did work yes, go after that? How did it all evolve? Well, as I said, I was 19. Um, so it was 1979. Um, I was only there for a few months and I, three months, I think. And I ended up telling the trainer who had hired me that I needed to leave. Um, and when he asked me why I told him, I, um, wasn't comfortable with all the violence around me, mm. you know, again, growing up with so much violence, uh, I was struck as a young man of the paradox with the paradox that so many people claim to love horses and then I'd watch them being violent with them. Yeah. Um, you know, the chains over the nose, chains in the mouth, the whips. And, and I saw horses being beaten. Mm. I saw frightened people losing their temper and getting very angry with horses. And I didn't want to be around that. And I knew absolutely nothing about horses before I went to the track. And what I did learn in those first few months is that there's an industry out there with multiple disciplines. I, I really had no idea. So I wanted to leave the track to go explore. 
what is driving? What is dressage? What is reining and jumping and cutting? And what are all the disciplines about? Um, but I didn't get a chance to right away because he, uh, he valued my work. And so he transferred me out to a breeding farm so I could spend the winter with um, mares and foals, just handling mares and foals. Wow. It was the following spring, and I, I had come to the conclusion that, yes, I love these horses, and I, I want to pursue this as a career, but it won't be in thoroughbred racing. I'm six foot one, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not going to be a rider. I'm not even going to be able to be an exercise rider, and I, I wanted to ride. Did you ride the horses during that time at all? No, not at all. Just handling not on the all. ground? All, just all handling, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I found my way back up to Canada, where I'm originally from, and I like to ski. And I found myself the perfect balance. Uh, I was volunteering to help out at a carriage driving barn located at Whistler Ski Resort. They weren't hiring. They do apres ski, carriage rides, sleigh rides, things like that. And so I was just a barn rat hanging out every day. They couldn't get rid of me. And finally, after... A couple of weeks of volunteering. I made myself invaluable. They gave me a job. And so now I'm learning of harnessing draft horses, driving draft horses, um, finding out very quickly um, that draft horses are not at all like the thoroughbred race horses. Mm. I did that for a season. And uh, what and was I the difference? That was a question I was going to ask you. Did you see the difference? Uh, was it? I saw a complete difference in the horses and I saw a difference in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an oversimplification, Tracy. It's a generalization, but at the thoroughbred, a lot of, at the racetrack, a lot of thoroughbreds were very hot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people in the industry were somewhat more aggressive. Um, I didn't think of the thoroughbred industry at the time, per se, as horse as much as people who love to race horses. Mm-hmm. When I got to the draft horse um, scene, the horses were much bigger, calmer. Um, there was a mandate to keep the horses calm so they did safe work as opposed to wanting horses full of adrenaline to run fast. It was just a completely different vibe to be working with draft horse people and draft horses as opposed to being at the track. You're going from tractors to race cars. There's a big difference. Yeah. And I, I was very enamored with the messaging, at least, this ethos that I could see at the racetrack at the time. The ethos when I got around the draft horses was – about empathy, learning to understand them, working with them, quote unquote, all these cliches. I never heard of any of those things at the track. Not at all. Everybody just did their best on a daily basis not to get hurt. Where all of a sudden, when I got around the draft horse people, it's about a craft and it's about learning how to um, understand horses, train horses. And I was fascinated with driving and it really, it really, um, it felt almost on a cellular level, like it was, it was familiar to me. Uh, I'm not 
so far out there that I'm going to start saying it was triggering past life memories or anything, but it felt very familiar. Uh, it felt natural to me. Mm. And I, and a trainer at the time that I was working with, these were all micro encouraging moments in my youth. And I heard the same statement a couple of times more in my life where the trainer said to me early on, you don't look like you're learning horses. You look like you're remembering horses, mm. which I thought was, you know, that considering at the time you work really hard and you don't get paid very much. Yeah. That was encouraging. So again, the, I, yes, I started riding these draft horses as well as driving them. My very first ride was on it. I just left the harness off, put the driving bridle on, tied a bailing string on for reins and got on to see what would happen. And I basically just sat on this horse and applied the driving principles with the contact that I had been discovering. And I learned from that that, yeah, I want to ride. I don't just want to drive. I want to ride. So from there, I uh, went back down to the States. I'd met a, a young man who I'd become friends with, and he was working down in Nevada. And I went down there, and I spent the next few years working at a, a guest ranch. And I was very fortunate that uh, they had a bunch of young green horses they needed trained, and they just kind of cut me loose. and. Let me, let me experiment on my own. I didn't have a tutor. I didn't have a trainer or a coach. Just had a whole bunch of young green horses and I was living in the mountains and go. And at the time, they, uh, they offered me the job because they had all kinds of ranch hands, but they didn't have anyone who knew how to drive. And the owner thought it would be great if some of these young horses were driven before they were ridden, not just get on and go. So that's how I got in the door. And uh, it really took off after that. A few years there, and I went off uh, on my own. By the age of 25, I, I decided to uh, become an independent horse trainer, hang my shingle up, horse trainer for hire, because, again, I was finding more and more dismay and discouragement in the level of violence that I was seeing. Mm. It's not that I'm under the illusion that training horses, especially young horses, is always going to be sweet, touchy-feely. It's not. Um, but I was very clear at a young age that when a horse is, is challenging a person, that it is up to us to maintain manage our stress and not to, to actually, they said, they're just words, Tracy, but I was very keen as a young man to find that distinction between being assertive as opposed to aggressive. Yeah. How can I get horses to respect me and trust me? Now that's cliche, but yeah. 40 years ago, 40 years ago, it wasn't. 40 years ago, it was an uphill battle to be seen as an, <laughs> an overly touchy, feely, passive guy who wanted horses to like them. Yeah. Um, and as I went from discipline to discipline, I spent years, by the time I was 25, 26, now I was looking into the English riding world. I had, um, I was starting to make it as a young local trainer in the Reno area. Uh, veterinarians and horseshoers were starting to refer their clients to me 
Um, I wasn't competing. I wasn't winning in any specific discipline. But the veterinarians and the farriers were telling people, um, Chris has well-behaved horses. You know, we can put his horse's feet without a problem. His horses let us examine them without biting us. Uh, I became known as this, this kid who had well-behaved horses. So it didn't matter whether it was a ranch horse for a cowboy or a dressage horse or a jumping horse, or an, there was a lot of endurance racing in that area, people started bringing me to Young's to start them because of a reputation for having well-behaved horses. And, and what I want to mention there, Tracy, is back then, in the 80s, um, the sport revolved around being very discipline-specific. Mm-hmm. If you wanted a career in horses, you picked a discipline, you practiced, you trained, you competed, you hopefully did well enough in competition to make a name for yourself so that you could make a living in your sport. So I was ex- exploring disciplines. Where do I belong? What's my niche? And, and this might offend some people, but I will say that I went from discipline to discipline because I was always disappointed with the human behavior. What I saw as I went from discipline to discipline that rainers didn't want to listen to dressage riders. Dressage riders stuck up their noses above cowboys and on and on and on. The endurance racers lived in their own world. The jumpers and the eventers lived in their own world. And every discipline that I went to, it seemed that that discipline thought their discipline was superior to the other disciplines. These human egos were amazing. Yeah, and And that was worldwide. And yet... Yes, and, and to a degree, it still is. Yes. And I'm just this naive kid looking for truth about horses. And here was my first real truth that I learned about horses and the horse industry by my mid-20s. That the only common denominator between all of the breeds and all of the disciplines is the behavior. It didn't seem to matter whether it was a draft horse or a quarter horse or a warm blood or a thoroughbred or an Arabian. Will it go on the horse trailer? Mm-hmm. Is it good about picking up its feet? Is it easily spooked? Is it easily angered? Is it defiant? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Will it take the bridle? It seemed like everywhere I went, these were the issues. They were always behavior issues, not discipline specific issues. So I made the decision by the time I was 25 that I will not be discipline specific. I'll be an all around behaviorist. You fast forward 25 years later, then this Nicholas Evans writes a book called The Horse Whisperer, and all of a sudden it has a term. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, to, to, to be someone who's more focused on the behavior between the horse and the people than a specific discipline. So uh, that became the brand is to be a behaviorist. And that actually made the development that much more difficult because people weren't going that route. To this day, people will still still ask me, like, what's your favorite discipline? And I often reply to them, self, self-discipline. Yeah. I love yeah. driving carriages. I love jumping. I love dressage. I love trail riding. I don't want to one, because a horse is a horse is a horse. People are people. We all bleed the same color. 
And the biomechanics and the psychology of horses and the mechanics of people, it's all the same. So I just focused on how do we blend human behavior and human psychology with horse behavior and horse psychology. And uh, that's been the path I've been pursuing ever since. And you found so many interesting things in your horse training, like on the, um, even the simple thing of, uh, this is one of the things that I completely loved uh, when I first saw it and it spoke loudly to me because it's something I've always believed and it's the illusion of horsemanship, teach people to desensitize horses so they obey and perform mechanically upon command. This is on your website. The empathy in your insights does the opposite. You sensitize people to connect with you know, the many counterintuitive nuances of the mind, the horse, so it can truly understand, appreciate and willingly cooperate. How did you come about all of this? Can you speak a little bit more to that? Because I find this part is, um, is the key really. Uh, oh, I'd love to. Um, the term I use here is congruency. Mm-hmm. Um, even before the horses, the reason why I had to leave home as a young man, I left home at 15, is because my response to the um, dysfunction, the um, addiction, and the abuses was to change myself into scouting. As a young man, I had a lot of idealism, and I came to the realization that. Um, I am not in alignment with my own parents' behavior. And so I had to leave. The cliche is fight, flight, or shut down. Yeah. And when you're a kid, it's flight. I wasn't about to shut down. I have this belief system. Sometimes people can be too courageous to run away. They can be too kind to get into a fight, so they shut down. So we have these cliche responses, just like horses, fight, flight, or shut down. And I went looking in life, even before I found the horses, I went for congruency. How can I live my life maintaining dignity and integrity that I live according to my values and my principles? I was, a, I was what's called an eagle scout. And so when I found myself in the horse industry, I was drawn to the horses for many of the same reasons people are. Um, But I was appalled, as I said, by the violence. So I was determined to find a way to live up to the cliche talk. What was, what stunned me about the horse industry and it reminded me of parenting is that the horse industry industry seems to be seemed, it's not as bad now, to be full of people who would say one thing and do another. Hmm. So I would hear all the politically correct terms. Uh, Back then, late 80s, Ray Hunt was saying, you're not working on the horses, you're working on yourself. But I'd see lots of cowboys who, who would quote Ray Hunt and then go beat up a horse anyway. It's like politics. Yeah. It's what, what people say and what people do are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. So I was determined there must be a way to be with horses so that you can become their leader that you trust without 
compromising your values that if you love them, you don't beat them. <laughs> if you love them, I grew up in the 70s with this almost a combination between being like a 60s, 70s uh, flower child hippie mentality and a idealistic Boy Scout mentality. I just didn't want to have to fight horses. Mm. I didn't want to have to hit them. That I, like anyone else, I could get drawn into the frustration and get aggressive, but then I couldn't sleep at night. I'd lay there going, oh man, I lost my temper with that horse. So there has to be a way. I made it. And I guess this is the distinction, Tracy. When you first get into horses, what becomes your goal? Is it a discipline specific goal to get to the Olympics, to win a state or national championship? Or is it to become the best person you can be for the horse? So my goal was not a discipline-specific competitive goal. It was an altruistic personal development goal. Mm. So this ethos of do not desensitize the horses, sensitize the people, came about naturally as I did not look at a horse as something to be conquered so that I could use it to compete and win to feed my ego. I looked at horses as something to quest to understand. Um, I, I, I'm a music, I started playing the guitar when I was nine years old. And so I learned from music, you don't conquer a musical instrument. You be very disciplined and you practice and you learn to understand it. Mm. Um, I, I rode crew internationally, competitively up until that age of uh, 15, um, did very well, trained hard. Did very, I, I was channeling what was going on at home and school into music and sports and scouting. And I learned from a very young age, conditioned into me by good coaches, that the pursuit of excellence is self-discipline. It's in your mind. It's in your body. None of my pursuits in music or in sports or in scouting in or conquering anything it always involved learn how to do this as a craft to the best of your ability and that mm -hmm. requires practice that requires discipline and so when i met horses at the age of 19 and i didn't have other people telling me how to do it i looked at them as music i looked at them as art i looked at them as sport i didn't look at them as something I needed to conquer to win a medal or win a ribbon. And so it just always had this underlying message to me that how do I improve myself to learn more and understand this creature so that it, it sees me as a force to be reckoned with and nothing to be afraid of. By the late 90s, I was hearing that message everywhere. It was the horse whispering message. All of a sudden, I'm not the only guy saying this. Um, but what really then struck me, Tracy, is that I would meet at the, you know, at the horse expos, watching others at clinics. I would hear this message over and over again with the whole horse whispering revolution, natural horsemanship revolution. Mm -hmm. I was hearing nice things. 
but I wasn't seeing it. In yeah. fact, I was hearing the contradiction of be your horse's partner. And in order to be your horse's partner, you need to desensitize them. Yeah. So that's a contradiction. Yeah. And that's when I started saying, okay, well, if, if, as a differentiator, as a disruptor, the distinction here is that I will not teach people to apply pressure to a whole until it begs you to not do it anymore and then be magnanimous about the fact that you're not no longer the one hurting it. That's yeah. what goes on to this day. Yeah. Um, so when people say we're going to desensitize a horse, that is not, that is not a user-friendly process. Um, there's these, I know I'm jumping around now, but there's these gaps. People don't connect the dots. If, if you go to a leading equine expert who knows biomechanics, say someone like Dr. Deb Bennett, this is what I mean. I'll go back full circle, Tracy, to what I'm saying yeah, earlier about okay. con congruency. Yeah. So we have experts in the field who say this is how a horse's body should move. The classical biomechanical sets of coming through its back from behind with balance, with rhythm, with relaxation, a diagonal balance. We hear that hands are not supposed to pull on faces. We're supposed to ride with our seat and legs. We hear these things. But then I see experts in the name of desensitizing horses riding hollow-backed horses. So there's this contradiction. How um, What this dressage rider says a horse should look like what this biomechanical expert says a horse should move like, <sighs> how come the horse whispers horse has a hollow back? Yeah. So I started looking for this. I, it's an overgeneralization again, but I was seeing it that so often, shall I say in the English world, I was hearing all this emphasis on biomechanics and shapes and frames and the correct leads and the correct diagonals. It was the physics of riding without much empathy at all. Not really. And then I'd look at, at the whole natural horsemanship movement and I'd hear all this empathy and all this talk about partnership, but then I'd see, well, the biomechanics and the physics aren't there. So one was esoteric feel good philosophy. The other was all science without much esoteric feel-good philosophy. And I'm thinking, well, where's the middle ground in all of this? You could all, it's, a, it's not the best analogy, but in this day and age, you could, if one discipline is liberal and another discipline is conservative, where's the middle? Yeah. So the congruency for me is this. I want the science of a horse who is biomechanically, physiologically working anatomically correctly to maximize its body, maximize its biochemistry. I want the science of biomechanics and physiology and biochemistry to be the best that it can be. I want the psychology. I want the relationship to be the best that it can be. What I often see in this industry is very kind, but shall I say, soft spiritual seekers who have issues with conflict, or I see control freaks. Yeah. And where's the middle? Yeah. <laughs> so my whole life has been dedicated to, I want a horse who respects me, but I want it to trust me. I want it to feel good working with me. I want it to appreciate me, not just respect me. I want it to come over and thank me for my behavior. Mm. So, 
hence the expression the expression don't desensitize the horses sensitize the people comes from statements like as a response to statements like this he must respect your inside leg kick him harder yeah we've all heard it so when a coach when a coach talks empathy but then tells you to kick him harder that's a contradiction I don't want that contradiction. When a person is all about the touchy-feely empathy and don't do anything wrong to the horse, but they let that horse push them around and bully them, I don't want that either. I don't want a horse mauling me for treats, and I don't want a horse afraid of me because I'm a bully. Where is the middle in all of this? And what I have found is it... To take concepts like you're not working on the horse, you're working on yourself, and take those past esoteric statements into real practice, horses do become, a, can become, a self-discipline in becoming increasingly aware on how we affect them. And, and so I've taken it, I've taken it to a whole nother level of being so aware of how we use our bodies on the ground and in the saddle, being so aware of how we align our psychology and our expectations to the horse that we're not forcing horses, not at all. Truly training, not, not um, bullying, truly learning, not bribing, truly leading, not playing games. Mm. So it, it's been a lifelong pursuit to, to find that middle way of being a force to be reckoned with, nothing to be afraid of, um, to earn a horse's respect and trust through my own behavior. Yeah, it's perfect. And how did you, did you see yourself in that middle ground or did you have to go searching for the middle ground? Uh, that's a great question, Tracy. It, it brings up the difference between theory and practice. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes I use often, there was a, a famous baseball coach from the United States. His name was Yogi Berra. And uh, he was a major league player in the day. But he was best known as a coach. He was a better coach than he was a player. Mm-hmm. And he was asked about that. And here's what he said. In theory, there's no difference between practice and theory. In practice, there is. Yeah. In theory, I knew I was searching for the middle ground. In practice, I knew I hadn't found it yet. Mm -hmm. So I had to keep looking, looking for the holy grail, shall we say. I'm still looking for it, but I am clearly and definitely on that path. Uh, the horses validate that for me all the time, and my students validate that for me all the time. Mm. Um, students, educated students. Um, one, one of the greatest um, compliments that I can receive are from colleagues, from professional peers. When a Grand Prix judge thanks you for showing another level of achieving finesse and relaxation, Carriage drivers, thank you. And jumpers, thank you. And dressage riders, thank you. That's all great. When the horses, thank you. So I am, I'm finding it. I am finding the way the horses validate that. The people validate that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because that's how, that's the whole reason this podcast started because I knew there was a better way. 
Um, I didn't know what it was and, and I'm on the search and now I have the, the knowledge and the theory. It's just applying it in practice. It's a, it's a really interesting. We are. And we know the industry, Tracy, is, is um, rife with it. People who sit on the sidelines and critique. Mm. It's, it's one thing to understand theory. It's another thing to put it into practice. Yeah, that's where, um, yeah. excuse me, the rubber hits the road, as so to speak. That's where yeah. it becomes really, really tricky. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also it's also when you're doing it, um, making it feel authentic to you too. That's what I, mm-hmm. I find is difficult. But I am really interested in when you talk about some shapes for ho- or a horse feels better for them than others. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Uh, sure. Yeah. The the expression I use is the frame of body is the frame of mind. So, actually, I'd like to tell a little anecdote to respond to the question Uh, a few years ago i work a lot in europe a few years ago i was in the netherlands at a big expo and i was asked to join in a panel with five four other experts five of us in total Um, one very famous clinician everyone would recognize his name two olympic gold medal dressage riders and a vet and myself Um, two members of the Dutch Olympic dressage team. So the question that came from the moderator, there was a couple of hundred people in the audience. The question was, what do we, each of us, have to say and share about the topic of the well-being of the horse? And the subject was being introduced because just recently, one of the Scandinavian countries had passed a law that it was illegal to keep a horse in solitude. You had to have a, another companion horse for the sake of its well-being, its mental well-being. So that's how he opened this discussion and asked each of to comment on a horse's well-being. All of my colleagues, understandably, referred to the advances in well-being, in nutrition, saddle fit, chiropractic, massage therapy, farrier work, dental work. We know how to take care of horses better than ever. And they all had that to say, and I was last. And I said, okay, I have another question. Or I have a question in response to your question. What does it mean when a horse lays its ears flat back? And the answer came from the audience. People said, angry. I said, what does it mean when a horse has its tail puckered tight into its hindquarters? And the answer was fear. I asked a couple of more like that. And by the fourth question, even the panelists next to me were in. And I was asking specifics about what does this body language mean? And after three or four of those, I said, okay, here's my definition of well-being. I said, we're at a major show here in the Netherlands, and when we walk outside this tent, the best in the world are out there displaying what they do with horses. And if you walk out there, you will find saddles that fit and shoes that fit and teeth that are good, and you will find shiny coats. But you will also find ringing tails, ears flat back, horses in hyperaction, horses with hollow backs. So my question is, 
When are we going to address the mental well-being as the emotional well-being of horses as it's expressed moment to moment through body language? Fast forward to how controversial it's become in the last decade about certain horses winning dodge tests when they are visibly angry with their tails and ears. To have a horse visibly angry with a ringing tail, flattened ears, wrinkled mouth, performing Grand Prix dressage, which is supposed to be about rhythm and relaxation during action, is a contradiction of the ethos. And we all know it. So I brought that up. So what I'm talking about is the shapes of horses, the postures of horses, the gestures of horses. Now, we all know any trainer worth their salt knows you want to warm your horses up long with that long stretching back and long neck. Mm-hmm. But that is defined in our sport as a stretch of the body and the muscles. It's true. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, it's passive. In terms of biochemistry, it's producing endorphins, oxytocin. It's producing the good feeling drugs. When conversely, we have a horse in a hollowed back, like so many jumping horses are, like so many Western Gymkhana barrel racing horses, pole bending horses are. When we see hollow backed horses, that is the frame of a horse's body when it's in fight or flight. It is producing adrenaline. It is biochemically and psychologically and biochemically stressed. Mm. When you see horses in rotor, in hyperflexion, um, when, we, when the rider chooses to cause shape in a horse's body, what is that naturally? If you saw a horse out in the field with its chin on its chest, that's a horse having a nervous breakdown. So the body is what it is. You can go up to a horse who is perfectly relaxed and content in its mind. Go ahead and hold its ears back. Lay them flat down on its head. And within about 10 seconds, they start to feel the anger. And they will start to feel the corresponding emotion that goes with that shape. So if you have a perfectly relaxed horse and the human causes it to hollow its back, we are, in fact, going to produce the adrenaline that then leads to fight or flight behavior. Um, When a horse is in rolker, that shape of hyperflexion, what that would indicate in nature is a total nervous breakdown. In the Arabian world, in the saddlebred world, when they cause horses to, quote, park out with their legs splayed out and their back hollow and their head up, that is a total victimization posture in another horse from another horse. Like a a mare would take that posture being raped. So the shapes of horses communicate how they feel. The shapes and the gestures, the postures and the gestures are how they feel real in, in real time. So connect all these dots, Tracy. That's why in English writing, coaches call them the aids. The leg is an aid. The half halt is an aid. The, even the spur is supposed to be an 
aid. Mm -hmm. So let's go full circle back to the congruency of are we walking the talk of what we talk about? When a coach says the leg is an aid, but then the coach also says to kick them harder, that's not an aid anymore. It's a weapon. The inside leg of a horse, they're on a horse, first in the right place at the right time with an appropriate amount of impulsive pressure will bend the spine through the entire back which will open up the vertebrae and trigger endorphins, the good drugs. A horse will fall in love with a rider who knows how to create a good feeling on the inside leg, as opposed to the inside rein, just pulling the neck in. So we affect shape. When the inside hand leads the face into a turn, it folds the neck at the shoulder. The impulsion can't come through, the horse feels bad, They end up dropping their shoulders and they go into either a hollow back or they go behind the bit. What the person just did with their body to the horse's body caused the horse's body to go into a distressful shape that feels bad. Feeling bad will in real time lead to poor behavior or poor performance. So it's totally us. We have all the power. We can use our feet, our legs, our hands, our tools, whips, spurs, bridles, we can use them for good or bad. Mm. We can use them to shape horses in a way that feels so good. They love it. Uh, It's politically incorrect to say these things, but when one person is leading another person in the dance, how well does it feel to be led? You know, it's cliche to say riding is a dance, groundwork is a dance. Well, it's not a polka. Truly have the feel feel good about the experience it would be akin to taking the dancing analogy and say okay it's a tango learn to tango and then the horses will love how you lead the dance if you're mediocre at the polka they don't appreciate enough if you're excellent at the tango they want to dance it all makes so much sense it's um it's so logical and i haven't heard it put in that way before it's very refreshing Well, thank you. I do hear that. And I do often, (laughs) I'm not saying that out of hubris. I also want to say that that's part of the congruency because Mm -hmm. I do hear that a lot. I I have professional coaches say to me, oh, now I finally understand. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell have you been teaching for the last 20 years? (laughs) When When they finally understand what it truly means to ride from inside leg to outside rein instead of just saying it with words what Mm -hmm. that means and what that connection will do to a horse's body and what that body will then do to a horse's mind and to its behavior all in real time. So when you just said that makes sense, I say, thank you because Mm -hmm. I was plagued as a young man that it didn't make sense that the professionals were confusing, mystifying this with words. And then I don't see it actually happening. So the congruency is this that I went looking for as a young man. It has to be true for English riding. It has to be true for Western riding. It has to be true for recreational horses. It has to be true for professional competitive horses. It has to be true for carriage driving for any breed of horse. It has to align with the science. It also has to align with my spiritual path. 
with my sense of empathy and values and integrity. I do not want to go to bed at night feeling bad about what I did to a horse. Mm. And finally, it has to make sense. <laughs> yeah. it, it actually, I have to understand why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and what I expect as a result from the horse and how I'm going to respond to the horse when it challenges it. There's another thing people in this industry are in denial of. Yes, horses challenge you. That was going I'm to be really my next question. You are literally <laughs> reading my mind from the other side of the world. I love it. What do you do when you meet an aggressive horse or a, or a traumatized horse or a troubled horse? How do you then work with them? Well, the answer is depends. Um, the, the, a frightened horse is not the same as an angry horse. Um, so, so if you see aggression, you need to understand first, is the horse coming from fright or anger? Yep. And, and a lot of times anger does come from fear, but what's Mm -hmm. it exhibiting at the moment? So first is reading the body language. It doesn't matter what the owner says about the horse, the tail, this is why I titled my first book, horses don't lie. The tail tells me the truth. The shape of the back and the neck tell me the truth. Is the weight on the inside forehand, outside forehand tells me a lot. So reading that horse, um, you, you responded beautifully, Tracy, to my saying, we don't desensitize the horses, we sensitize the people. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another one. You can't control horses. Mm-hmm. It's lo- only logical. They are bigger, they are stronger, they are more attuned to nature than we are. We can't really expect to control them, but we can control how we respond to them. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question, how do I respond to a horse that has issues? There's only two sports in the Olympics where men and women compete against each other, sailing and equestrian. I'm a pretty good sized man. I don't have an advantage over a a small woman when it comes to sailing a boat. It's who has the greatest awareness for adjusting to the changes in in the waves. That's what Mm -hmm. makes a great sailor. Mm -hmm. Who can read the moment? And it changes moment to moment. Who can read the horse so well in the moment and control how you respond to it. So the answer that I can give you without you giving me a specific mm-hmm. would be when I meet tr- any horse, but especially troubled horses, I must be acutely aware of reading them and responding to their need in how, and, and what I do. It's this, I see the horse, I see the issue, and how am I going to respond with the energies that come out of my body? are pushing energies, blocking energies, and drawing energies. Those are the three energies of being a herder, a shepherd to the horse. I see an issue. The horse runs over people. I see an issue. The horse would rather rear up and strike at a person than go into the horse trailer. I -hmm. see an issue. If you go into the box, they turn their hining to you and threaten to kick you. I see the issue. How do I adjust where, when, and how much push I'm sending into their body, draw I'm sending into their body, block energy I'm sending into their body? 
it's like being a chiropractor. How do I respond so that the horse gets this? I'm challenging you and I understand how you're responding in a dominant but non-threatening way. I understand it. It makes sense to me the way you're responding with blocking and drawing. So the horse will experience how I respond to it, block, draw. It will see it with its eyes and it will feel it in its category, in its own body, as it as I engage with it, as I go through the dance with it. So that ultimately this, in one session, the horse says, okay, I understand. Force to be reckoned with, nothing to be afraid of, and you're only trying to help me. And I get that because I feel better now than I did when I first met you. Feel better, literally feel better. So much horse training is gauged towards the acceptance of dominance as opposed to the appreciation of behavior. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I haven't quite got that in my head, in my body. I okay. just, it's, it's entered right. my head. I haven't quite got it in my body. I'll give you a classic example. Yes, I love stories. Uh, we go into barns. Everybody with this has probably had this experience. You walk into a barn. And there are in so often there are horses with their necks and heads hanging out over the stall gate with their ears flat back in anger and they're threatening people that walk by. Mm-hmm. We've all seen it. So I don't know this horse, but it presumes to look as a human being and threaten me with anger. So first is this. So someone says, Chris, can you help me with my aggressive horse? Whenever we go to the box stall, they're too aggressive. You're trying to put the halter on, they're biting, blah, blah, blah. Okay, first is it's not the horse's fault because human beings are unaware of how offensive we are. We're unaware of it, how offensive we are to the neck and the head of a horse. Mm. There is a zone around the neck and the head of a horse It is their personal space, their personal bubble. As we're often told they need to respect our space, I don't see people respecting their space. And very specifically, their space is this. Of the three energies that can possibly come from the human body, the pushing, the blocking, and the drawing. To push energy, to send an impulsive energy towards the neck and the head of a horse is aggressive. It's not assertive, it's aggressive, it's threatening. It's not a leadership shepherding message. To shepherd a horse, you send impulsive energy to the body. But if you send impulsive energy to the neck and head, you're interpreted as a bully. Mm. If you have a herd of horses and they live together and they have a good leader, a leader who is dominant and assertive but not a bully, find little bite marks on the body of the horses, on the ribs, on the hips, on the shoulders, but not into the neck and head. Only bullies in the neck and head. A human being, Tracy, just standing next to a horse, petting it, the intention can be, I just want to show this horse affection. But the posture of how that human being is standing, interpreted by the horse as pushing. 
-hmm. We joke about this in human terms when we see the little grandchild who's only three years old grimace when Aunt Mabel comes down and kisses him on the cheek. You know, it just feels offensive. Some of us know it about dogs. Don't lean over the dog. You know, squat down, but don't lean over. It's too dominant. They cringe. Mm -hmm. People are very unaware of the fact that without intending to whatsoever, most human beings are inadvertently disrespectful to horses. Now, passive horses just turn away from it. That's why their head's always looking away and we get the shoulder. Passive-aggressive horses tend to bump people with shoulders. We've all experienced that. Aggressive horses start actually bunting people with their head. Think of how many times a ho- you've seen or experienced a horse take its head and shove it into a person, actually mm. push them with their head. They're actually telling us, you're rude. Don't stand there like that to me. So now, your question. I approach a horse who's notorious for biting. I can't control the horse. I control how I respond to the horse. Number one, I make sure I'm, en- I'm aiming my center at its girth, not its head. My navel, my belly button points at this girth, not the head. I pet them, reach up to pet them with what would be the outside arm of my body, not the inside, not the arm closest to their head. If you mm-hmm. pet a horse on the neck or the head with the arm, your arm that's closest to their head, they interpret that as a horse bending into them. We're pushing again. So you can stand there and with your hip next to a horse's head, send a draw inviting it to come to you or send a push to send it away. You can do that with your core. You can do that with which arms you pet the horse with. For people listening to this, just go to YouTube and Google Chris Irwin, how to pet a horse. A picture is worth a thousand words and you will see in a three minute video such a clear distinction between a horse reading me while I pet it and my body language is saying I'm friendly, reading me as I pet it and my body language says I'm a bully and you see two completely different behaviors. So the horse that bites, number one, in controlling my responses, I position myself so that I'm not sending that signal. I position myself to send a dominant but non-threatening signal. It will still probably want to come in and nip at me. What I don't do is the passive aggressive move. It'll still want to nip because it just presumes you're a human being. You're part of the problem. Here I come. What I won't do is jump away from the nip. That is a draw that invites it. That's two pass. And what I won't do is reach out like people do and give it a little slap in the mouth. I won't do either. I'll approach it so that my center is aimed at the body. I'll be open in withdrawing energy of my body that it can bring its head to me. I'll be aware for the moment I see the threat coming from its mouth. I will then put up a blocking energy to the head, not a slap. There's a big pushing and blocking. Blocking is you bumped into a wall. Pushing is some, if I hold my fist out and somebody walks into it, they bumped into my boundaries. If my fist punches them, that's completely different. So when the horse goes to bite me, it is blocked. And there is a reprimand of a push to the shoulder, not the head. So you sum all that up, and here's what the horse experiences. You didn't threaten me, 
And when I challenged you, you responded appropriately. You played by the rules. Therefore, I respect you. Mm. They res- it, think of a game that has rules. Yeah. Football, football, hockey. Games have rules. And they're, the horse industry is full of people, including professionals, who are out there in groundwork saying a horse needs to respect you, teaching people to bully horses in the name of respect, but they don't respect the horse. Not, not really. They say they do, but they don't know what they don't know about how their body's actually sending mixed messages. Yeah, and I think Watch that's the somebody key. They're in not the deliberately pen. doing it. Yeah, they're not doing it deliberately. They're actually just completely um, ignorant, you know, as I have been until I saw your work um, of the actual nuances in body language, literally where your belly button's pointed can be quite offensive. It really I demonstrate it with people. Mm. I, I'll have a volunteer come up from the clinic, and it usually is a woman. And, you know, I'm a tall man, and so I've got a lady standing next to me. And I just ask her to stand beside me. And I say to the audience, now watch her responses. She doesn't know what's coming. Just watch, watch her body language respond to mine. Stand perfectly parallel beside her, facing straight ahead beside her. She's fine. As soon as I turn and my chest and my solar plexus is even starting to point her way, they're already backing up. Yeah. It's all unconscious. Yeah. So if... If I did to you what people do to horses in the name of showing them affection, you'd be calling the Me Too movement that Chris Irwin is a bully. He's a chauvinistic bully. Yeah. So that's that's what's so ironic in this is and, and I don't want to upset, but but the single greatest irony that I experience is that 85, 90% of the clients are women who don't who love their horses and don't realize that their horses don't love how they love them i i i i also bring up the child and the kitten analogy all the time it is here's two analogies that that kind of people can relate to one the child loving the kitten the kitten's not loving the loving no the child's intentions are good in their mind the child loves the kitten wants to show the love wants to be affectionate but how it's being done with the body language, the kitten does not appreciate. So it scratches the child, it bites the child, the child drops the kitty, says it's a bad kitty. Mm -hmm. And the adults know it's not a bad kitty, that that kitten wouldn't have bitten that child if it had been holding it differently, holding it better. So the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The child does not know what the child does not know, but the child perceives the kitty as bad. I run into this. Every day at work, the yeah. client comes in and says, my horse is bad. And I say, actually, yeah, I know it bites you and I know it bucked you off, but it's not bad. It's not. It's just mad about how you're making it feel. <laughs> so yeah. we need to change. So that's one is the child and the kitten analogy comes up all the time. The other one with regards to chemistry is this everybody knows this one you don't have to be a horse person you can go pet a dog that you've never met before so i'm going to bring up all the horse industry clays it's cliches this dog that you've just met is not your partner you've never met it you're not its leader you've never met it Mm -hmm. you know nothing about this dog and it doesn't know you but it wants you to pet it 
It's insatiable. And if you stop petting it, it comes back for more. They're greedy about, I want you to give me that rubbing around the ear. We've all experienced dogs and cats that can't get enough of that loving. Mm-hmm. Now, that is not loving. They don't know us. Science has proven that it's, they're in love with the chemistry. They're in love with the oxytocin they get when we massage their ears. Mm. we've all a dog want the loving, but they're not loving us. They're loving the oxytocin created when we behind the ears, when we rub their ears. And now if you were doing the same thing in the middle of that cat's back, it wouldn't come back for more loving. It would say, no, you're, you're doing it in the wrong place. So I don't get the good drugs. I'm out of here. Yep. That's the, so you'll have one dog doesn't want to have anything to do with people because its experience is people have caused me to feel bad. I feel the adrenaline of fear based on people kicking me. I don't trust people. As opposed to, I have all this, I have oxytocin overload from people loving me and I get enough. Mm. So that concept that the animal's behavior is subject to their chemistry and their chemistry is subject to our behavior, that's not just dogs and cats. That's horses. That horse can love the way you ride it like a dog wants you to pet it, or that horse can hate the way you ride it. The cat doesn't want to be held by the kitten mm. because how we make them feel. Wow. I totally, totally get that. And I would, um, I would go as far as saying as a woman, I would, um, I would make a massive generalization and assumption that every woman listening to this would be able to relate in her own body um, as to how she feels on a daily basis uh, to the energy around her. And so it's, it's really interesting that, um, that we would have all, all the women would have our coping mechanisms as, you know, the fight flight shut down and a lot of women probably shut down or or fight um, or flee if you can. But it's fascinating that we, when it was done to us, once we have the awareness, we would get it completely, but we go out and do it to our horses at the same time. So we're literally doing to those we love, our horses, what we actually don't want done to ourselves. And it's not out of, um, it's not conscious. Nope. It's, uh, it's just a, a complete lack of understanding of, of that body language. That's amazing. Wow. Wonderful insights. Wow. It requires, Tracy, the ability to stay mindful. Mm. People have to look. Um, I'll give you another little anecdote. Again, this one came from the Netherlands just last season. One of my um, top certified trainers there. I have many trainers who are discipline specific. And so they, they work with myself as an all around behaviorist for the groundwork and the riding, but then they'll have a discipline specific dressage coach or jumping coach, reining coach. And this one was dressage. And the student asked me, an adult student, she's a professional trainer, coach, competitor. She asked me, would I mind critiquing her coach coaching her in a dressage lesson at the <laughs> clinic. And that was my response too. I said, really? I said, is your coach open to that? And she said, yes, absolutely. She has seen the difference in my horses and, and me, and she's really intrigued with what you do. And we're looking for the common ground, blah, blah, blah. She said all the right things. I said, great, bring her on. 
So the weekend came and we were having the clinic and it's her turn. And my job is to, to judge the coach, critique the coaching. It's a one hour session. She coaches for 45 minutes. And then for the last 15 minutes, I'm going to come out and go over with her any thoughts that I had in front of the audience. So it's pretty delicate for the egos. Yeah. And I came walking out with a clipboard, a long list of things that I had seen during that 45 minute dressage lesson. And she jokingly saw me coming with the list and she said, oh, that looks like a long list. That was the first thing she said. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, it is. And I said, are you this again? And she said, absolutely. Bring it on. So, and I, I, I was very politically correct, very compassionate for the situation that she was in. This is a Grand Prix rider, mm-hmm. coach. And I started the things that I'd seen that I would do differently. Um, from the model that I teach of training before schooling, that that a horse has to understand. You have to have this training. A horse has to learn how to learn before it. you can teach it anything. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things that she had the rider do that I felt were very counterproductive that were causing stress instead of facilitating relaxation, that were inhibiting movement rather than facilitating the throughness that we're looking for, stinging the horse rather than suppling the horse. And I started going down the list. And by the time I got to about the third or fourth point out of maybe 20, she started legitimately understanding defensive. And she started saying the but, 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 but. Now where I'm about to go with this goes circle back to something we talked about half an hour ago in this conversation, the difference between theory and practice. Mm -hmm. I had to stop her from interrupting me and trying to justify what she was doing because she was going into theory and she was starting to want to debate me about theory. Stop her. And I said, I don't want to debate you about theory. Look at your horse right now. Look at it. And it was covered in sweat. It was standing in a hollow with a hollowed back, nervous sweat. It was mm-hmm. stomping its feet. It was wringing its tail. It was so stressed. And I said, with all due respect, I do not want to debate theory with anyone who the result of a 45-minute ride is a horse more stressed than it was when it came in. This is a very upset horse. So I don't want to hear your theory. I'm looking at the results. They're not good. Yeah. So this is our industry. People will debate theory and not look at the bloody horse right in front of them. Yeah. That's what gets me. It's like the emperor has no clothes, you know? Mm-hmm. So it requires this. Human beings have these amazing attributes such as cognitive dissonance and willful ignorance. Mm-hmm. We can just deny what we're seeing. Yeah. Just deny it. It happens all the time. It happens in this sport all the time. People just don't want to see it. 
So the single greatest challenge for anybody with horses is the mindfulness of staying present and developing an awareness that every single moment you know what you're doing. I don't mean know what you're doing in terms of having a higher understanding of dressage of how to do the canter pirouette or the piaf or the, or the I'm not talking about that, the dressage. I'm talking about really technical high school movements. I'm talking about knowing where your own weight is. I'm talking about knowing what the signals coming out of your hips are. I'm talking about knowing the difference between a holding hand and a pulling hand. Mm. Knowing what you're doing with your body at a very base, knowing whether you're lunging on the correct leg. Just for fun, for your listeners, horse people talk about a horse being on the correct leg at the canter, at -hmm. the lope, at the gallop. And when I ask people, do you know whether or not you're on the correct lead when you're on the lunge circle or in the round pen? They look at me like, what are you talking about? There are two ways to walk a circle in the round pen or a lunge circle. One of them is directly stepping in. If you're circling counterclockwise to the left, nine out of 10 people are stepping left. Now, ask that person to pick up a wheelbarrow and walk a circle to the left, and they can't step left. They have to step out to the right and circle left. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain this with just words in a podcast. Again, go, go online, Google it, and Chris Irwin, walk, wheelbarrow walk, and you'll see it. There's two ways to walk with our body in a circle. Most people are lunging on the wrong leg, the vast majority. So the pushing impulsive energy coming out of them is in front of the horse. It's not in the body. It's actually mm-hmm. in front. Mm-hmm. So when most people, if you can visualize, Tracy, in your mind, a video in your mind of horses being lunged and or in the round pen, they're almost always counterbent. They're circling left with their heads out to the right. Yeah. And people just assume that's normal. And to a degree it is. But it's usually also the case that the lunger is sending impulsive energy in front of causing a counterbent horse on a circle. So in fact, the horse's experience is we're, we're just out here resisting each other, which mm-hmm. is everyone in this game has seen horses on the lunge line, bolt, run away, leaping, bucking, kicking in at the lunger. Horses in the round pen, so stressed, they want to jump out of the round pen. Mm-hmm. And it's all because the person's lunging on the wrong leg and doesn't know it. All wow. the person has to do is just change the way they're walking and the horse is completely different. So our sport, why I can come on so strong when, when you ask me these questions, is our sport is full of professionals who fix problems they're unaware of causing. They don't want to hear me say that, but it's true. It's like to be a professional horse trainer is to be a pyromaniacal fireman. Let's start mm-hmm. a fire and then feel really good about the fact that we can put it out. So, yeah, yeah, I can get pretty opinionated because people don't know what they don't know. And the industry is full of people fixing problems they're unaware of causing. Yeah, wow. We don't, we don't, we don't have to have all this resistance. We don't. We don't. We, we cause the problems. That I believe. That I believe completely. Because you see a horse in a paddock 
and it's exhibiting none of these behaviors. And then you see a horse with a human and it starts exhibiting these behaviors. So it's, um, I've, I've always felt that it's, it's humans who are the problem and, um, and not because we are horrible or bad or egotistical or any of those things. It's just because we're a bit ignorant and we just need to keep learning and um, yeah. any moment that we feel we know everything is the moment we're probably going to come unstuck pretty fast. It's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, which is, again, the point of this podcast is just to bring as much information to the world as possible so we can start to realise what it is that we're really doing. Yes, my just is a look deeper, try harder, care more. I, I, I was recently, I recently uh, was working at a place and I got on to ride a horse who was shutting down. It was a Grand Prix jumping horse that came over from France. And uh, he was doing a meter 60 clear in France consistently, no problem. He came to the USA and he's dropping rails at a meter 20. And now his flying lead changes aren't there. And now he's shutting down. So they're losing this very expensive horse that they brought in from Europe. Mm. And so I'm getting on him to feel him out and explain to the trainer who's now riding this horse how she could do things a little differently. And as I'm to work, not even on his flying changes yet, just his canter transitions, at one point she said, well, that was beautiful. And I said, no, it wasn't. It was barely tolerable. She said, well, it's good enough. And I said, no, it's not. So you, and I had to say to her, you have to raise your bar of expectations here. Your definition of good enough does not feel good enough for this horse. Mm. try harder <laughs> you yeah know? wow yeah yeah it's it's to me the struggle in this industry again theory cultural means these days that we've all heard one is we don't know what we don't know and the mm. other is it is what it is so when it comes to the fact that with a horse it's Behavior and performance is subject to its chemistry, its frame of body. It is what it is. We affect that frame of body and that chemistry for better or worse. It is what it is, whether we're aware of it or not. So I would put this out to people. A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. If you're a horse, if there's something about its behavior that you don't like or appreciate that you want to improve, if the performance, if you just want to see them try harder for you, competition, if you want to turn negative into positive or you want to get more try and willingness out of your horse, you will have to change. The horse won't. We have to recognize how am I going to make myself better to make this horse better. Because all the Einstein cliches are true. If you want your horse to be better, but you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, that's the definition of insanity. Mm. Einstein also had another quote, problems can't be solved at the same level they're created. Yeah. So if you need a change with your horse, don't keep doing the same thing. You need new information. You need to try something different and new. So yeah, that's, it's a never ending journey. Yeah, that's the one thing I know for sure, is that uh, is is we're on it, and and I I don't I've I've never felt that we're there yet, 
I, I think we're doing amazing things and we're, we're, um, we're learning great things. And I'm learning every time I speak to a new person, you kind of think, you know, how many trainers in the world can you really speak to and learn something new? Yet every single one I, you know, and, and opening my eyes to, to something and ears to something completely new and different. And it's, um, it's amazing that, uh, and I, I love, I want to see more collaboration within the horse world. I want to see more of people like you getting around to a lot more places where, you know, coaches and and everyone's so much more open to really helping each other because it seems like um, the the horse world is trying to segregate itself a little bit. And if you're not, um, I've seen a little bit on social media, somebody who is doing positive reinforcement now wanting to evolve through, or maybe not evolve it, it, find her authentic way beyond um, what she was doing in positive reinforcement and, and she was treated pretty badly um, on social media about that. And, and that kind of thing, it's, it's, it's just not on. It's just not on. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, we all need to work together and learn more and learn from modalities and learn from each other and really get together. And, and that's where the magic happens, I believe. I, I agree totally. There needs to be more of a sense, a collegial sense. Yes. I, 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 refer to, I refer to my colleagues, but fortunately, it's often perceived as competitors. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And therein lies the, the start of the problem. But anyway, I'm yeah. so glad yeah. that I got the opportunity to talk to you today, Chris. You're a, a breath of fresh air and I've, again, learned something new. Thank you so much for your time today, but not just that. Thank you for everything that you do for horses in the world because it's really important and it's great work and I'm so glad you're doing it. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you, Tracy. I sincerely do appreciate your appreciation in return. Mm. And how can we find you? You have your website, chrisirwin.com. What socials are you on? Uh, right now, just Facebook. Um, Great. Yeah, That's I'm, enough. I'm kind of a techno. I'm a techno peasant. So chrisirwin.com and Facebook. That's enough, I think. When you're doing too much, it's too much to manage. I'm learning that the hard way. Um, and I will put the links to that in the show note as well. But uh, the show notes as well. But um, once again, thank you so much uh, for everything that you're doing for horses and for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show as patreon members you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again and remember any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you as a subscriber will have a say in you could also pop over to edenriverequestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. 
The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up and basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend, tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.